Welcome to Faith Restructured. I'm Cole. And I'm Mike. Here we cover topics on faith, deconstruction, and reconstruction. We discuss books that have helped us through the process, and we'll interview some friends and experts along the way. Let's jump into today's episode. Kick her off here. Oh, we're starting. Hey, hi, everyone. <laughs> hi, everyone. Just leaves meeting. Dude, what a week this has been. Can I just say that? I don't know how say much time more. you have tonight, but I'm Tell me dead. More. VBS, middle school mission trip, happening both this week. Two weeks away at Redacted Camp. <laughs> ah. uh, uh, how you doing, brother? I'm good. I had a long meeting today. Um long meeting that i i was hopeful it would go an hour and 10 minutes but i was sure it would go at least two and i was right so hmm. um stuff that we had to meet about which is good but you know it's just long and i'm preaching sunday so just um prepping for that preaching on job ironically job after our conversation with scott but um yeah cool. it's part of a kind of put together curriculum by our denomination so that was there were like two or three texts to choose from for this mini series we're doing so i was like yeah, all right cool let me check it out i do job and then i'm speaking at that camp so that's either gonna be my last time speaking at a camp or the first of many so we'll see or maybe it'll be I your only time uh, I hope everybody listening has gone back and heard the our episode with Scott Evans. It was a really life-giving episode for myself and for uh, hopefully for you, Mike. I, I think we had some crazy conversations after. It was just a really good time to talk to somebody who, you know, one of the things we like about Roar is one of his mantras or things that he pushes like this non-dualistic mind which is not seeing things as black and white, but, but seeing the color of things and, and not and purposefully living your life in a way that doesn't fall into dualities. And uh, I think Scott was really just a, a good image of what it could look like for us in a few years to uh, continue down this path of non-duality. And so it was just really cool to have a conversation with somebody who's kind of trotted the path that we are now walking down uh, as well. Yeah. And, he just brought so many different angles to things that we all know, right? It's like a prism. Mm -hmm. Like we all are seeing the same light, but like depending on your angle or perspective, you might see other colors coming through there. And um, just some of his commentary on like how being a father changes perspective of mm -hmm. faith or um, working with college students at a predominantly irreligious school or living in a country that is post-catholic not post-christian and mm. you know things like that just just enough to to shift some of that gaze but um that was good but uh, you know i look forward to having him back on because we had to cut about i don't know 15 we talked for i don't know 15 minutes or so and we had to cut another 10 or 15 yeah. for technical difficulties and so there's plenty more that we we could have talked about and so i look forward to doing more of He's that a great but, guy yeah yeah, well, cool. today we're going to jump into Wisdom Pattern again with Richard Rohr. So if you're reading along, this is chapter four, uh, Transformation. Very, very interesting chapter. 
I will say I'm struggling to uh, kind of catch. I think it's just where I'm at in life right now, where I'm struggling to to follow some of the things that he talks about. But um, I think that's just more my brain being scrambled. But I really did appreciate a lot of what comes in in and out of this uh, chapter. And uh, so I'm really excited to get it going. Mike, do you want to kick us off with uh, an early thought from here that struck you? Yeah, yeah. Well, so Transformation is the title of the chapter. And he basically sets up early on that in life, like we know that there are things out of our control and we kind of just accept that things happen and that stinks, but it is what it is. Like you can fight it, you can ignore it, um, you can accept it. But either way, things are going to happen. But in fact, the hardest part of change are the things that like we are planning. Mm. Like when we are calculating ahead of time to change something, we are far more resistant. Um, and then that ends up slowing us down entirely. So he sets that up early on to kind of give himself the room to discuss what transformation is because in faith, like, in the spiritual life and the contemplative mind is a lot of what he's talking about in particular. Um, it's all about transformation. Uh, wh whether you want to use that word, you want to use sanctification, like whichever words work to get at this idea, but just the mm -hmm. big idea of s saying we need to get from point A to point B and uh, we're never going to get to point B unless we continue to transform. Mm -hmm. And that takes energy. It takes time. It takes a little bit of calculation, but it takes uh, a spirit of discernment and being a contemplative and learning mm -hmm. how to do that. So. One of the things that I thought was really cool that he said early on was, um, this is page 83 if you're following along, but he says, uh, kind of in that same same vein you're talking about, we need to be, uh, we need to have a contemplative mind about these things, but he talks about a really important thing that we need is wisdom and that wisdom uh, it says knows what's worth worshiping and honoring. And he says that the rest of us will settle for anything that gets us through our next conversation. And so rather than kind of work at the process of transformation, which often is the process of discernment, like you talked about, or the process of finding the wisdom of how we move forward, he says, uh, I believe that everybody has faith in something in order to survive, even if it is faith in cynicism. I think this is a good place for us to just kind of put the book aside and talk about our feelings on kind of the deconstruction process and cynicism that, that can, can easily creep in. We've touched on this a few times, but I know we've been having some conversations back and forth about this recently, um, that there's a couple, you know, and we'll talk about this more at the end of the book because that's kind of how he wraps it up. But when you go through the deconstruction process or whatever you want to call it, we've, we've heard many people call it different things, right? We had the uh, disorientation, like Pete talked about. We had uh, the unraveling, which is a Rachel Held Evans term, but that's the term that Scott uses, right? When you go through that process, there is like this time where you just become a little bit cynical about the world. You've been a little maybe you've been hurt, you've been jaded, you know, stuff hasn't, you know, you finally learned these things, it doesn't make sense anymore. And so cynicism is a natural reaction to a lot of these things. But it's interesting, like Mike and I have been talking about this with with a couple of people we follow, but uh, I don't know if you want to add in anything on, on that. 
really. Yeah, well, it's just difficult because every person, regardless of if you use these terms or not, we should all be growing, right? So we should all be yeah. growing, transforming in our faith. And some people honestly are better with these kinds of tensions than others. Some people are just not phased by it. Um, they have questions, but it doesn't rock them to their core. And mm. some people, they can't get past the question. And I don't think that either of those are more or less valuable in a broad s- sense because you can't fabricate feelings. Like you can't right. pretend that it bothers you and you can't pretend that it doesn't bother you. But being honest about where you are in the process is totally the first step. Like Jesus meets you where you mm. are, not mm-hmm. where you think you need to be. However, there is a point at which like I think we do have say in where we are. Mm. So a lot of what happens in our lives happens to us. But one of the only things we can, can control is how we respond to the things happening Mm -hmm. to us and around us. And when it comes to faith things in particular, you know, I can only say from my own experience, but you know, I grew up in a church that I was diehard invested in everything that they said, believed, and towards the end, maybe started to transition a little bit ideology wise in regards to how they viewed music or something like that. But as I got older, I started to shift my thinking about a lot of those things, but yeah, part of it was a frustration at the things that they taught me and a frustration with some of the perspectives they had, but -hmm. part of it was a frustration with myself for embracing it wholeheartedly without seeking out what other avenues there might be. And I think that's some of the underlying um, subliminal bitterness that can come with deconstruction is kind of a shame mm. a- about your own vantage point. And I'm not saying that we need to like all be ashamed of who we are, where we've been, but rather like there are people that I see in this process that you might end up in a place where you don't want to pursue faith anymore. And I get that. But if you are going to pursue the faith in some sense and hope is integral in that. Mm. And I know you can't manufacture that out of thin air, but it, it is problematic if your faith in Jesus Christ is hopeless or if Mm. your perspective of the world is hopeless or if transformation is not something you think that is part of your spiritual journey, because regardless of how you talk about sin or how you talk about the way the church has been in the world, like, we all need to be transformed. We all know our capacity for great evil, right? Mm. So if that's the case, then we need to be a part of putting it back together as a community, not just as individuals. And we can't do that if we just siphon ourselves off into bitterness. So Mm -hmm. I think Rory gets at some great points about that actually in this chapter, but those are Yeah, and so maybe what it looks like when, so we say this term cynicism, and so maybe maybe what it looks like is you're not able to sit through a sermon and at the end of it throw everything away right that is deconstructive cynicism right you're stuck in that process a sermon may or may not be garbage but you're not even coming to it looking for where Christ might show up you're just looking to find ways to to dissect the sermon right and that's okay because 
early on, what you're learning is that that is a piece of listening to a sermon. And that is a piece of hearing the word of God. We do have to discern through what somebody else says. But there does come a point where we need to actually do that work in a hopeful, transformative way, like Mike was talking about. Maybe for you, faith has kind of tapered off and all that it becomes is a critique of Christian culture. Um, and that's fun <laughs> and it, it can be funny, but there does like, I don't know when that point comes, but there does come a point where it just like gets weird and it's like, all right, maybe you should stop focusing on those things because this does nothing for you and your faith. Right. Is your new religion just to tear down? Exactly. So yeah, maybe this is a, a, an on-ramp back into some of the chapter. Mm -hmm. Well, yes and no, I I don't want to end this, but this will build on it because I I know for sure he talks about some of this, but um some of the broader strokes of what he's talking about when we're talking about transformation is that, uh, let me just read this bit. And he uses the language of belly of the whale and he's pointing to Jonah. And just a side note, I think about this every time I preach, like Jonah preached probably the worst sermon of all <laughs> human history and God was able to do something with it. So um, I'm not trying to condone bad preaching, but recognizing that if we are embracing hope in some way, hopefully we believe that God can do things. But uh, this Mm -hmm. section is called the belly of the whale. And he says the word change normally refers to new beginnings, but transformation, the mystery we're examining more often happens, not when something new begins, but when something old falls apart, the pain of something old falling apart or chaos invites the soul to listen at a deeper level. It invites and it sometimes forces the soul to go to a new place because the old place is falling apart. And the mm-hmm. mystics used the word, um, the, the, these words to describe this chaos. They called it fire or the dark night or death or emptiness or abandonment or trial or the evil one. This is when we need patience and guidance and the freedom to let go instead yeah. of tightening our control and uh, certitudes and platitudes. And so like, just that idea sometimes it's not about like ripping it all apart to build something new from scratch but rather to to recognize some of the old things are passing away mm-hmm. and this is like one of the most significant parts of the language in greek that paul's using in like second corinthians 5 17 when he talks about like when we're in christ we're a new creation like the old has passed away behold all things are new mm-hmm. but the it's using this present tense that can either be are or is, and also it's continuous action. So it's like also um, indicating kind of like all things are becoming new. Like it's a constant process. It's not that like Jesus hit a switch in your life and everything's magically better. Now we all know that's not the case. Um, Even if sometimes that's the language we use, but rather like on a daily basis, if we have the capacity to see God at work, then we know that God is, changing things for the better and that's part of the hope of the gospel but recognizing it might often look different than we would have imagined it some of that's because we had faulty expectations and some of it is because we're just blinded by our own expectations um Mm. but i think that that language of chaos being um the result of old things passing away and how that's a painful process is often what's at the heart of deconstruction. Cause it's not just like, Oh, I don't like these ideas. Therefore I'm mad. It's 
no, the things I thought were the most true and stable parts of my life are no longer that. Mm. So now I don't know who I've been. Has everything up to this point been just a figment of my imagination? Like, and I, I just don't think that's a fair rendering of what human experience is. Um, yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I think uh, um, 85, he talks about um, change happens, but transformation is the process of letting go, living in confusion, shadowy spaces for a while, and eventually being spit up on a new and unexpected shore. And so I think, you know, as you know, bringing this kind of back full circle to the conversation about, you know, everybody has faith in something, maybe cynicism is is just the fact that like we're not we're not meant to live in the belly of the whale right we are meant to to spend time in there we are meant to to let it do the work that it needs to do but we are also called to move to someplace else and so um you know hopefully that's not a place where we all get stuck for too long and so if you're feeling that maybe it's time to like reach out to somebody for some spiritual direction or or you know, maybe pick up a book by Roar <laughs> or something along those lines. Yeah. And something so. he says there that uh, he, he goes on a little further, but basically just says like, um, you know, in moments of insecurity and crisis, like shoulds and oughts really aren't that helpful for us. They just increase our sense of shame and guilt. Um, mm -hmm. But it's that deeper something that we are strongly for that allows us to have the patience and the perseverance to wait out those difficult moments. And that's something that Roar set up earlier that we've talked about a little bit, but often postmodernism at its worst is just knowing what you're against rather than being strongly for something. Because when you're for something, it gives you hope for that thing, even if you can't see it yet. Whereas if you're against something, you're always going to see the things you're against. And so you'll always have that spirit of opposition and anger which is important. That's part of the human experience. But if you don't have something you're hoping for, then you're always operating in a, uh, a place of cynicism. And what he gets at using again, this Jonah imagery is saying that we're a culture of productivity and efficiency, and we're not terribly patient with our growth, nor with the growth of others, but God is clearly much more patient. And ultimately, as a result, much more effective. And I think what he's pointing to there is like, we all want people to have patience with us as we go through our process, but we have right. zero patience with one another. Um, and what you see in this, the Jonah story is even when Jonah wasn't, you know, doing the right thing, whatever that means, um, God was patient waiting for Jonah to come around. And for Jonah, it was quote unquote, three days in a whale. Maybe it's 10 years as you're in limbo between churches or denominations mm -hmm. or, religions like who knows but god has way more patience than we do so don't let that be the discouragement i guess yeah here's my story of kind of the way out of this i was sitting at my home church which i had avoided after you know all the stuff i talked about with um happening in college and i was sitting there listening to a sermon and i was like bah can't take this this is gross i don't even know where this person's going it doesn't make any sense and then i left the church that day and i was with my parents so i wasn't focused on driving and i was just sitting in the back thinking like what am i 
doing? <laughs> why, why am I even showing up here? Like, I'm just doing this out of ritual right now. And so if there's really no need, then there's no need. And I need to come to terms with that or else this needs to start being something that's transformative in my life. And I need to be able to pick this stuff back up and be a mature adult and a mature Christian or, you know, take the next step if you want to say it that way um, and start to put this stuff back together and start to see the beauty and the hope in it. And it didn't happen overnight. I still have issues when I sit in services and don't agree with things, but I've learned that there's still joy and there's still hope to be found in those things. Do it perfect. Absolutely not. But um, it's something that I kind of realized is like, this is the next place I need to be headed in rather than just kind of sitting here being a little stagnant in myself. So, yeah. And the language of transformation, like maybe, maybe some of what you we've said up to this point is frustrating or like, you feel like it's bullheaded or missing the point entirely or not doing justice to where you are. So let's take a step back and just say like, mm -hmm. all of us should be pursuing transformation on some level all of us struggle to know who we truly are whether it's because of the culture around us or the voices in our life like we have who we think we are and who we think we're supposed to be to please the people around us so at the very least we recognize we all should be in a process of transformation towards something good mm. hopefully right not instead of something bad um, <laughs> and we recognize that there are things about us that are not good you know, whether yeah. it's our capacity for gossip or frustration or pettiness or fill in those words, we all know what our list is. And you don't need mm -hmm. a religion to give you that list. Take away all of the things that you think the church is wrong about. You don't even live up to your own standards of goodness. Like that's mm. part of what it means to be human. So we should all be pursuing that transformation on some level. It's just about where we see ourselves in that process. And I think one of the things that cynicism leads to is when you accept like, oh, this is just how it is. Well, then you get comfortable with how you are. Mm -hmm. And I think anytime I find myself thinking, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I, I think I'm doing good in every category. <laughs> it's usually an indicator that either I'm not doing good in any of those categories or that I'm deceiving myself. Like, right. And I don't want it to sound like to anyone listening that doesn't know me well, like that I just constantly think I'm a terrible person and that's my you know, perfectionist like God complex, no, you know, no. whatever. It's just rather like, no, I recognize like th there is who I want to be and where I am. And those mm -hmm. are two different things. And transformation is faithfully embracing that journey. And sometimes that journey, often that journey will look very different for different people. Sometimes it's about showing up to church when you don't want to. Sometimes it's stopping yeah. that process. Um, look, what we're saying here, and I, I know you just this is basically what you just said mike but like we are we're not saying that there's a there's a you have a diagnosis and this is the amount of time you can spend here and this is the amount of time you need to go to the next place it takes whatever your timeline is right you may have been hurt in ways that i can't even imagine by the church that you can't step back into it but you may still want to pursue this faith and that looks so much different we're not trying to say, we're not trying to slap a label on it and say like, all right, everybody listening, it's time for you to move to the next stage. We don't know that. We don't know where you're at. We're not trying to prescribe anything. What we are trying to say is this is the part of this whole faith thing that we find valuable. And that's 
none of this stuff happened for MicroEye until we started putting this stuff back together that actually made transformation in our lives to make us better people and better humans, right? And that's by going through the deconstruction process, by living in that tension and living in that uncertainty, and then trying to put it together on the other side. And again, it's not something that we've even arrived at. It's a constant process in our lives that we've just been able to start to learn to recognize a little bit better. So don't see this as a prescription, but more as an invitation to say, hey, maybe maybe it's time to start seeking the, the next phase or the next stance. And you might be sitting there going, absolutely not. Okay, totally fine. <laughs> you should yeah. You should keep being faithful in the place that you are. And that's totally okay. Yeah, not to force a parallel, but like a simple example maybe is perhaps, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, these Jewish groups from mm -hmm. the Gospels that we often kind of just say, oh, yeah, all those guys are the bad guys versus all those Jesus. guys that Jesus fought. <laughs> right. Um, and these are people that knew their Bibles. Right. These are people that studied the law. They, they didn't just memorize the names of the books of the Bible. They memorized the laws all 600 plus of them. Mm -hmm. And then they spent their lives interpreting, well, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? That's why when Jesus comes on the scene and people start questioning him, he says things like, well, what do you say? What do you think? Mm -hmm. um, because that was the common cultural practice there. But these are people that spent their entire lives with scripture and got it wrong. And in fact, Jesus's 12 closest followers, 13, if you want to include Judas, which I think you should, um, <laughs> they got it wrong. They didn't understand who Jesus was. They had to unlearn some of the things that they thought they knew so well so that they could see it in a new light. It's not that they were completely off base. It's not like they missed the mark entirely. And yet Jesus said, yeah, I understand that you have heard it said this, but in fact, it's actually that. Um, that's that language of not coming to abolish the law, but coming to fulfill it. And often like we get caught up in worrying that if we let go of some of the things we thought for so long, then we'll lose it all. But that was precisely the setting and still is of the faith that Jesus brought, right? Is this, this lifestyle where people had to walk away from some of the norms they had cherished in their culture and their families for mm. thousands of years. And that was an act of faith, right? Yeah. Oh, Sabbath isn't just this one day of the week. It's more of a mindset. It's more of, you know, and there's just ripple mm -hmm. effects and ripple effects. So yeah. um, that's awesome. Maybe we can just wrap up this little section about cynicism uh, later in uh, page 89. He, he kind of, I think this is what we're trying to get at is like uh, Roar says in general, deconstructionist attitudes are only helpful for initial clarity and focus. They're super helpful. And that doesn't mean that that, again, that doesn't mean it stops like, we all need to see those things in our lives and go, wait, we need to step back a second and take this apart. And then we find out a way to put it back together in a healthy way forward, or we drop it all together. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, that's just encouragement to you that maybe if you've been sitting in that and you're feeling like, Oh shoot, we're getting to a place of cynicism. Maybe then it is the time to start to see like, how might we put these things back together? Do we need to put them back together or can we leave them behind? Those sorts of things are questions to start asking. Yeah, and it wouldn't be a, an episode with Cole if I didn't make us go back a page. But um, yeah, you know, 
So, so I think this is important to Roar's kind of undergirding thesis for the chapter and really the book is, um, this is back on 87 in the second full paragraph. He says, postmodernism is a mindset and ideology where everything is relative. Um, so relativity, right? So sometimes this can just sound like the traditional conservative critique of the left or something like that. But I think Roar is right here specifically in the realm of spirituality. So he says, because the contemporary mind has decided everything in life is relative instead of relational. And I think that's some good alliterative um, parallelism there. <laughs> uh, relative instead of relational, it forces the individual to manufacture his or her own greatness. Perhaps we've confused the relative with relational. Relative thinking allows us to dismiss or decrease the energy in everything. Relational thinking allows us to increase energy and kneel in awe before God in all things. Um, and he goes on a little bit. I don't want to, you know, read every little line of everything. <laughs> um, but what he's getting at here is that what happens when we are constantly looking at the world through this lens of relativity, uh, we don't even stay true to ourselves, right? Because there are values mm -hmm. that we esteem as good, right? All people should be equal. Well, who decided that? Like we, Obviously, that's not a natural human idea if all of the terrible atrocities of human history have existed. And we can go down the list of the things where different people groups, different tribalism, you know, different communities, different countries have had different values about what is good, what is bad. But if everything is relative, if everything's up for grabs, then it forces all of the decision on the individual. And this is not how the early church work. This is not how communities mm. work. They made communal decisions. This is like the idealistic world. Maybe it's the hopeful world to the point where you're just naive. And I think he uses some of that language throughout, but he's saying like faith is, uh, what, what you say here at the bottom of 88 faith in its most universal sense is openness to the mystery and magnanimity and more. We don't have to be religious to know that's true to have faith in something beyond yourself, to have faith in something bigger than yourself, rather than just submitting to this idea that everything's relative, nothing can be sure, because ultimately that's nihilism to the point of nothing mm. has value. And and then it, he wraps up that entire section with the line you pointed to, like deconstructionalism, it's helpful for clarity and focus. And mm -hmm. he says initial, like for initial clarity and focus. But if you stay in that place, then all you do is destroy like, and so that's something that I wanted to get at in one of our earlier episodes, but I think there's a difference between deconstructing and destroying destruction mm. and deconstruction, right? If we're yeah. just taking a wrecking ball to everything that's ever existed because mm -hmm. nothing can be trusted, then we're left with ruins. If you get deconstruct, you can take things off piece by piece and decide mm -hmm. if something is worth bringing back together. And I don't want to like, live and die by these analogies and these word images, but <laughs> certainly there's a difference between someone walking in the room and just trying to blow up every idea you've ever had and someone gently having the conversation with you like, Hey, well, let's think through why is this important to you? Where did you first encounter this idea? You know, and, and just go down that line of thinking. Mm -hmm. I understand there's ramifications when like your line of thinking or ideology impacts others negatively, mm -hmm. but it, when you're going through your own process, I mean, even that language, your own process, 
it's still a, a modernist, postmodernist view because it's so individualistic. And that's unfortunately, again, a product of our, our society now. Like we are in the Protestant church in particular, very individualistic. When did you in particular find Jesus? When did <laughs> you get saved? Rather than the majority of scripture, the majority of the early church is all communal. All of mm -hmm. the yous in Paul's letters are plural. You all. It, mm -hmm. you all will be saved. It, you know, there's just a, a turn of a phrase mm. that we miss. And I think it's because we're conditioned by our culture to see it from this perspective. So sorry, uh, eight minute uh, addition to go back another page. So, you know, <laughs> you know how we do here. <laughs> Dude, I, about halfway through, I was just like, your, your light just makes you look so white right now. <laughs> No, it reveals how white I am. It doesn't make me look that way. Uh, no, but, uh, you know, eight minutes is worth it because that was really, really helpful. Um, yeah. I really like what you had to say about, like, the way we approach those conversations with other people because I'm sure some people listening have had strained family relations with this. And I don't want to say it is your, like, I'm not, sorry, I'm not saying that it is your fault uh, because you have gone through this process and now that has caused that. But maybe looking back on those conversations you've had with family and saying, how might I change that going forward might right. be a good question to ask uh, because there are probably ways where you can respect community without having to conform to what they are saying. Uh, in yeah. those moments. I think that's really helpful um, because again, I've been down that road. It was a gentle conversation with the people that I loved about where I was at and what I was, what I was moving forward to. So, all right, Mike, where you want to go next? Well, you know, I want to go just like two lines further. So yeah, I know. Jump um, to a... <laughs> yeah, all, right, all right. Let's, let's not speed through, but pivot through. Uh, I'm going to take us to 90 and he's okay. talking about how if we're living in the world of relativity, then postmodernism or your obsessive deconstructionism doesn't want to commit to any worldview. Now, mm. listen, we're both millennials, so we don't subscribe <laughs> to labels. Um, yeah. So I understand that, right? Except for but, millennial. Yeah, it's like, uh, <laughs> hey, oh no, uh, um, you got me. So he he's using this idea of skepticism and he says, um, skepticism is a way to avoid ever having to place our bet on anything. Mm. Um, and therefore we never have to worry about getting hurt because we never like put our hat in the ring. Right. So universal skepticism is a common thought process for today. Critical thinking often looks like intelligence and sometimes it is um, mm. a Bishop could be totally suspicious and skeptical yet never be called a heretic. Isn't that strange? Mm -hmm. And so he just goes on, skepticism and criticism are fail-safe protection measures for the psyche. But when they are dominant, something deeper and more important has been abdicated. Mm. What he's pointing at is like, if we're never willing to commit to something, which, you know, this is such a broader issue. Maybe we should just pivot and talk about this because this keeps coming up in my life, at least, and I'm sure in yours. Now more than ever, I believe millennials and Gen Z in particular, so any boomers or uh, who's our parents? X, whatever. Something Anyone like older than millennials listening? <laughs> uh, maybe it's you too, but millennials and Gen Z, so around 38 and below, identify themselves as spiritual but not religious. And maybe you want to use the term agnostic, but I don't believe that's because people 
don't believe in a higher power or they or they're just oh they don't want to follow rules or they just want to have it their way it's like no because they've seen what religion has done mm. not just historically but currently like sometimes people talk about like being murdered for your faith like that doesn't still happen today like here in the United States, like 99.9% of the time, that's not why it happens. But there are people that die for their faith across religious lines mm-hmm. all around the world. And so when people don't put their hat into one of these worldviews and call themselves spiritual rather than religious, I think it's more a commentary on what the what the legacy of the church has been in mm. recent decades and centuries rather than a commentary on people's ability to encounter God. Mm. I believe God is at work regardless of if people know how to name it or see it, but people aren't as ready to embrace the language of religion or church or Christianity. And I don't think it's because we have a mass exodus from church because people don't think there's anything important in the world and nothing spiritual. It's because they struggle to encounter those things in those places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think Scott really uh, hit the nail on the head with our conversation with him. Um, he just said like the church needs to deal with their crap. Uh, the church needs to have a reckoning. That's what we need. Yeah. We need to be honest. We need to deal with the, the sins of the past and the sins that continue. Now we need to make sure we set up systems that those things don't happen in the future. And we need to care for the people who've been hurt by church. And, um, you know, I think he can play that out even more with with his uh, with his uh, answer to you know what it, what do you think the church n- or what do you do what are you most accept or what uh, I think we can also use that with his other answer about the values, right? Right. We need to come to terms with the fact that church needs to change a little bit, not not because it needs to be more attractive or it needs to be more you know contemporary or traditional or modern or you know uh whatever but it needs to be something that actually meets people where they are at right now and i think church is really struggling with that as their identity right and i that's a probably in big part to the the large evangelical movement that we're coming out of it's like we just don't church capital C church just really doesn't know who they are and it's really hard for them to move forward. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's my day job. So I don't want to really do that right here. (laughs) Well, I think a big part of it too is so there's such a vast diversity of let all kinds of categories of diversity, but let's just say Mm -hmm. of belief, right. In the capital C church. And anytime one of those individual tribes Call it a denomination, call it whatever you want to call it, call it a subset of the evangelical or whatever you want to say. Whenever you believe your tribe has it all right in all the other ones, they were just close, but not close enough. I was working on that, uh, the service day on Saturday, and I was talking to this guy and a couple of our teens, and it's just a really cool conversation. And I'm not going to use specifics of the church or state even that he was talking about, but he was like, yeah. I introduced myself in this state he'd lived in for decades and to this mm-hmm. woman, she was like, Oh, like, do you go to church? And he said, yeah, I go to the Presbyterian church down the road. And her response was literally like, well, at least you're a Christian, I guess. And she walked away. He's <laughs> like, and that is one of, he's like, I just felt so, you know, excruciatingly how 
how much she wanted those words to cut me deep. Mm. And of course, I'm not saying every person in every camp is that way. Of course, you know, whenever something like that comes up in the news, people go, okay, that was the one exception. We're not all that way. Mm. But that kind of thing happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And that is like, oh man, the, the more that we are fighting amongst ourselves and our inability to affirm that Jesus is at work in all kinds of ways that we don't know how to name, the more that we are doing it as service because everyone on the quote unquote outside looking in can't see it. Mm. And of course I have to weave this back into roar, but this is one of my favorite lines that he uses. This is on 92. He says, Jesus has a lot of hope in sinners, which is good news for just about everybody. Jesus only has problems with those who don't think they are sinners. Mm -hmm. This turns all religious history upside down. The search for so-called purity that's over. Now the only issue is honesty and humility, and we call it by the hard word repentance. And mm. that is like, of course, again, we read scripture and we think we're the heroes, but probabilities and statistics tell us that all throughout history, we are probably the perpetrators. We mm. are the disciples that would leave Jesus. We are the people that would commit these heinous crimes throughout history. Like, and when we read that line, Jesus has a lot of hope in sinners, but has problems with those that don't think they're sinners. In one breath, I go, of course I'm a sinner. And in the next breath, as I'm walking down the road and I see something, you know, happen, or I see someone do something, I think to myself, well, I wouldn't do that. And this is what is bred in the life of the church and the DNA, mm -hmm. like on our most humanistic level that we are in competition with one another's pride constantly. Mm. And so we think like, man, I don't have it all together, but I'm not as bad as that person over there or that tribe over there. And so we actually start to think, oh, you know, Jesus has hope in me. It's like, well, maybe you are one of the Pharisees. Maybe you are one of the people yeah. that think you have it right. And you are so like gung ho over the top about preaching your message that you know, that scene where Jesus is, uh, comes up and um, the, I think it's the centurion starts to pray and the Pharisee starts to pray and the Pharisee says, thank God I'm not like this sinful man next to me. And mm. um, the centurion says something to the effect of, you know, Lord have forgiveness for me. You know, I'm, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus mm. says, yeah, that's what it means to pray. And of course, <laughs> everyone goes, everyone listening, whether you're left, right, you know, up down you're thinking yeah that's what the other side always does they always call mm -hmm. everyone else a sinner it's like you know both sides are doing it it's a global spiritual food fight that never ends and that's the problem like we just can't get past our own ego yeah i i mean i like that i have the whole paragraph underlined right after that section where it says in any human scenario even when we don't want to believe it we know there are at least three there are at least and always three characters jesus the bad guys and the supposed good guys what jesus says is be prepared to be surprised about who is who this leaven of the gospel is in inexor Say that word. Inexorably. Inexorably. <laughs> I didn't want to do it unless you asked. <laughs> <This li> <laughs> I kind of just want to leave that in there. Yeah. yeah. Chipping away. This level, this leaven of the gospel is inexorably chipping away at such things as capital punishment, wars against the poor, 
war rationales in general, legal systems, idealization of the wealthy and those at the top, and traditions of human torture and oppression. The gospel storyline will have the final chapter of history. Oh, man, that's hard, because if you think about all of those things, those are things that don't really touch our lives in any significant way, right? We're yeah. fine with capital punishment, even though we get it wrong nine out of uh, or one out of every nine times, right? That the person didn't do anything. Wars against the poor, wars or rationales in general. Yeah, it's just that stuff doesn't touch us all the time. And uh, we need to be willing to to reconcile those moments as well. Man, I just saw, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, but I just saw a video of a guard being interviewed. It was like nine minutes or so. And he had performed 21, I think, executions. And the guy that pushed the button. And they were just asking, like, what did that do to you? And it, it was just intense and i think like i don't yeah i I don't want to go down all this but i'd be remiss if i didn't say like of course we we understand why the idea of capital punishment exists i think it's hard for us to justify it from a perspective of faith i'm not saying it's completely easy to come to terms with these things but it's really hard to line up jesus's life allowing things to happen to him the way he did um there are moral gray areas here, but I mean, the statistics alone, like Cole just pointed to one in nine people, um, that only sounds like a justifiable loss. If it's not potentially someone, you know, or love or care about or yourself. Mm -hmm. And there's something about making it, you know, something that you're removed from that I think dehumanizes people in Mm. a way that, how many people have been proven innocent posthumously? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just That's crazy. That's ridiculous and... to even say. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. And this is super hard to wrap your brain around. And I've done a lot of thinking in this area. So I don't say this lightly. And like, I don't expect everybody to be there. But there's not going to be capital punishment in the kingdom of God. And so if... America is a Christian nation. Sorry. Can't exist. I'm sorry. I I don't know how to work around that. I mean, I've done the work of doing mental gymnastics to work around it, but um, you know, let's leave that up to God <laughs> as yeah, maybe to we'll, how that happens. Maybe we can get I'm thinking of a couple of people off the top of my head. Maybe we could have a conversation with some people about that because I think that mm-hmm. that's probably something a lot of people on some level are thinking about um, whether for it or against it. But yeah. I think those are the kinds of things that as we work through some of the questions, right? If we come to the conclusion God is love, if we come to the conclusion grace, forgiveness, mm-hmm. etc., if we celebrate people like Paul who was Saul and was a murder, you know, like where do we draw the line of when someone is now irredeemable? And I understand there's ripple effects to those questions, mm-hmm. but like you said, it takes a lot of mental gymnastics to, to get to those places. So, and that, um, yeah, that's not justifying what people have done. Right. Um, that's saying maybe we just need to rebalance what justice looks like. 
for situations that are really, really terrible. Um, because, yeah. you know, one out of nine means eight people at least did something at this level that the legal system says is punishable by death. So I get it. But at the same time, if we truly want to say we're a Christian nation, I don't think God's going to be executing people. That's not what scripture gives us a picture of. <laughs> yeah. So re- related idea, and I'm, I'm looking, we're almost done the chapter and uh, mm-hmm. time too, but this I thought was really interesting, especially who wore quotes. So this is 94. I'm kind of starting in the middle of a paragraph, but he's talking about monuments, basically a little metaphorically and a little literally monuments mm-hmm. in our lives, monuments, you know, on a spiritual level. So this is starts with eventually this monument, and he's talking about our views of God and things like that, and it's maintenance and self-preservation. They can become ends in themselves. So sometimes the idea that we have like put up of what we think church should look like, life should look like, faith should look like, can become an idol or a monument mm-hmm. in itself. Not that those things were never important, not that for a season they weren't the right way, but if we let those things become the end in itself then we have missed our goal because our goal is always Jesus. It's not mm-hmm. to, to pretend we're Jesus. It's Jesus himself. It's not a fabrication. It's not like Jesus light, It's not caffeine free Jesus. It's Jesus himself. So that's what we're always pursuing. Side uh-huh. note. I just saw a caffeine free Coke for the first time in probably 17 years. Like the gold can, the you know gold what I'm talking about? wrap. Yeah. Dude, I was blown away. Anyways, he goes on. He says, Jeremiah rails against such formalization at the beginning Ah, of his prophecy. Put no trust in delusive words like the temple, the temple, the temple. While you follow alien gods, I am not blind. It is Yahweh who speaks. This is Jeremiah 7, 4 through 11. He references. He says, monuments need to be regularly deconstructed and rebuilt. And this is the quote I thought was fascinating. Thus, Thomas Jefferson believed... (laughs) that the revolution had to be repeated in some form every 20 years. And so um, I was just like, wow, okay, interesting. So I went and followed this footnote. Footnote, yeah. I'm trying to find it here, 37. So this is a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to William Smith. Everybody knows Willie um, on November 13th, 1787. Uh, so you'll just have to buy the book and look up the footnote because uh, I'm not going to read out the... Uh, web code URL for it. But I thought that was interesting that Jefferson said that, um, that, but I think that idea makes sense, right? Not that like every day we need to unpack everything. We'd never make progress, right? There are seasons for these things to occur. There are rhythms, but rather that we can't just say, oh, we need to do it how we did it a hundred years ago, 40 years ago, whatever, whatever that time was, because that's looking backwards. We need to take what happened there and build upon it and deconstruct the things that actually aren't working as through trial and error. But like, mm-hmm. we can't just say, well, let's just take it all down and make it look like it did. But now we just have <laughs> cell phones. Like, no, like you can't just say we need the faith of the 1700s. No, like look how flawed the faith of the Bible was. Look at the churches Paul was writing to. Look at Paul himself. Paul wrote the things I want to do. I don't do the things I don't want to do. I constantly do. I hate myself. Like (laughs) that was Paul, right? He wrote half the new Testament. Well, arguably, but another day. Right. So it's like, clearly there wasn't some perfect time. This has always been a faith passed down to us that we're supposed to build upon with the insights and wisdom of the capital T tradition, not traditionalism, 
the things that have been passed to us so we can mm. say, yeah, this is where we are. This is where we came from, but where are we going? What is Jesus mm. doing right now? And that I thought like, man, what are the monuments? And he doesn't say destroy. They're a part of our history one way or another. And maybe this is like too close to home for people listening with all statues getting torn down and stuff. But like monuments are part of our history, whether they're imaginary spiritual moments in your life or they're physiological places in your life, the church you grew up in, the family you grew up in, they're part of who you are. And so you can't just destroy those things and pretend they didn't happen. But how do we deconstruct what happened in them so that we can rebuild a better future for yourself, for your community, for the world? Two things that I think are really related to that. One is this is if you want to read a section of what it actually means to be a prophet in scripture, because this is something that came up in COVID a lot for some people that I know. Listen, prophets, prophets hold the people of God accountable to God and constantly are calling them back to God and want them to be living the most faithful life they can to God. They are not people who just look at stuff and go, this is what is going to happen in 10 years. That is not a biblical prophet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, not, not fortune tellers, how right? That, that's exactly what that is. It's a fortune teller, and that is a hoax. Um, and so, yeah, I've just noticed a lot of these, like, Facebook prophet people who you know for one reason or another are pretty attached to the the right you know the conservative side of of christianity maybe what they're doing is speaking to somebody in some way but it is not in like it doesn't follow biblical prophecy uh, in any way shape or form so it's kind of a new phenomenon so i would just caution you against those things uh the other thing that i think is super cool about what you're saying is uh he goes on to say each generation has the has to appropriate its deepest beliefs for itself right mm -hmm. and so yeah. same sort of idea like you're talking about tearing not not tearing down the monuments de deconstructing the monuments of your life and then rebuilding them it says he has this awesome line that just says god has no grandchildren right yeah so the faith of your parents parents the faith of your grandparents passed on to you the goal of this all is that it looks different that you appropriate your deepest beliefs in yourself, in your faith, and that that becomes in integral to what you're doing, that you're not just carrying something for somebody else, but that it's something that's speaking to your life and is something that uh, God is moving in you here and now. Scott used that image of the canvas, right? And how mm -hmm. like artists will touch up famous paintings to keep it and preserve it. But inevitably, as decades go by centuries go by there's different styles of painters and you've got so many people painting that it changes the original painting yeah um, and in in one sense that's beautiful because it's helping it grow with time but you're also moving from what it once was but i think that god is always doing he's constantly saying in scripture i'm doing a new thing mm. the tree the the, the imagery and the uh, and I know a lot of the prophets aren't read. So like a good challenge, it's a, it'd actually be a pretty short challenge. Read the 12 quote unquote minor prophets. It's kind of like 
not a cool thing to call them, but it used to be called the book of the 12, but you know, Daniel, Hosea, Obadiah, yeah. all those places you usually don't read, but listen to all some those of the guys who were under use. 18. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> that it's like Cole said, they're challenging Israel because Israel's not living up to the standards that God has called upon them to do. Right. I mean, think about Israel was liberated from slavery in Egypt and then built the temple of God upon the backs of slaves. Like, this is the tension. God's not just punishing Israel because like, oh man, you ate that shellfish. Maybe he would. I'm not speaking for God, but God is saying, <laughs> no, no, no. I've told you what it means to be a true community that lives with me. And you're doing the very things that I liberated you from. And how mm -hmm. often are we recipients of God's grace, love, forgiveness, hope, joy. And then we go and weaponize it against other people. And how is God viewing us? As he said, wait a minute, I just extended this grace and patience and forgiveness to you. And now you're turning it. Um, to wrap up some of the monument language, he ends on 95 in that one paragraph. He says, all of us love our monuments when they're monuments to our man, our movement, our machine. Mm -hmm. And I think the humbling thing to realize is mm. all of us think that we aren't those people. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, those other people are worshiping monuments and their movements and stuff, but we're not. We're worshiping the real thing. And we just, we have to come with enough humility. Cole and I here, you guys listening, the churches around the world, every movement around the world, that we all have the capacity to get blinded by what we think is right and to idolize and monumentalize. Sure, that's a word Monumentize. now. Monumentize. I've heard it both ways. Um, <laughs> whatever we think is right to yeah. the point of just total tunnel vision. So yeah. uh, I think that's a, a Yeah, I think Roar, Roar does a really good job of, of calling us to, uh, you know, calling us to deal with that, but also calling us to check ourselves in two areas. One is the one Mike just talked about. Hey, what are the things in our life that, that we're not willing to kind of deal with, right? What are the things that we're not willing to, to change? But then he also says, like, we also do this weird thing where we don't want to undermine the company store, he calls it, or we don't want to, you know, he says, like, an example is clergy, one of the problems with with being somebody on staff at a church is like they're paying your salary. And so you're not going to say things that rock the boat too much because you also are depending on them for a living. Right. And so that can be difficult. And, and so sometimes we can get inside of our own heads and we can, and we can undo this thing. That's like, we'll go so far, but we're not going to go to the, to where we really feel because we don't want to undermine the company store. Right. And Hey, look, I will say this is something that, that I have to confess constantly of like, yeah, I'm not, there's a couple of times where I needed to take a step further and I wasn't willing to do it because I wasn't sure what the ramifications were going to be. And so sometimes this, the deconstruction process, the reconstruction process, we start to really love this thing. We start to really own it. We can though also become a little pretentious. This is just a caution of roars of like, don't, don't get too uh, don't get too big for your britches or, you know, don't forget your raising as sometimes is said, um, right, that that sometimes we just think that this stuff matters so much. And the people who are living it like, um, you know, they they're not necessarily worried about all of those answers or the the crazy high answers. Right. Doesn't mean it's not important. Things aren't important to talk yeah. about, but there is a hierarchy of needs. And sometimes like we're, who is that? I think I just brought that up in another episode too. Oops. 
there's definitely a shift in what is most important and is the most important thing to care for someone's physiological needs or to like beat them over the head with an idea and make them say the words you want them to say out loud. Often I'm surprised how often Jesus doesn't convince a crowd to say exactly theologically what needs to be said. He spent a lot of time feeding them. Um, Yeah. But uh, we're getting close to an hour here, if not an hour already. So I've got one more thing I want to point to. um, And if you want to point to something else, actually, you know, there's more things, but I think this is, great on 98 and i'm not going to summarize or read the whole thing but he's talking about francis of assisi and how Mm. um or a cc uh either way but um how francis respected monuments even loved them but he went back to the original nonviolent, dynamic style of jesus um for his inspiration and so he talks about how francis was surrounded by city walls and inside the walls there were already established churches and they were fine. In fact, it was in those churches that Francis first found Jesus, but the further he fell in love with Jesus, the more he realized he had to go outside of those walls and rebuild old ruins. And it wasn't with his mouth that he was telling others that they were doing everything wrong in these churches and cathedrals. He was gently, lovingly trying to do things better. And Roar says, Mm -hmm. I think that's true reconstruction. Remember, Mm -hmm. the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. That might be the perfect model for all reconstructive work. It doesn't destroy machines or even monuments necessarily, but it reinvigorates them with new energy and form. And so he calls it constructive postmodernism and knows that uh, people, people that are engaged in that know the challenge of building and they build anyway it's mm. not naive denial but it's um it's true biblical hope and it's received only on the side of those that have suffered and failed because most of us become paralyzed um or we think we're so enlightened um, because we know about the problems um, and the sins and the scandals that we just stop it's like no yeah. faith and hope actually give us the capacity to to go further mm. um uh, Rob Bell has this uh, presentation, whether you're a fan of him or not, but he talks about cynicism and despair. Like he says, cynicism is lazy because it doesn't go far enough. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Faith and hope. It it's not in opposition to suffering. It's in response to it. It's going through those things. Yeah. That's the reconstructive work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, when I was reading through uh, some of these later, uh, pages he talks a little bit about job and i really like how roar handles it he doesn't really tie job up in a nice bow you know uh, i think we might have talked about this a little bit before but like there's just something about meeting god on the other side of suffering and yeah it's all good and and we realize that god's been there all along but there's no way to reconcile that or to say that until we go through it I shared a little bit of my story of just like the past years just been, it's just been a slug fest. Uh, my grandmother dying, losing a job opportunity, my wife losing her job and, and just kind of slogging through it. And there's no answer. There is no answer. And there is only questions. And there was a moment where I questioned if ministry was even going to be a thing I continued in. Um, or even if I was ever just going to be able to get a different job. And, uh, you know, I can sit here now and say, oh, wow, the things that 
that I'm experiencing now would have never been possible had none of that stuff happened, but it still sucked. It still was not cool whatsoever. And so I, yeah, I don't know where I'm trying to go with that other than to say I got a little emotional, um, kind of reading right after that sec or right before after, I don't know where it's at, but the section that you were talking about on page 99 and look, Again, we're not trying to provide a prescription here, but if you want to see what I'm looking at as something that I'm working towards um, or what you might be able to look towards one day as like this, this may be the way forward. Um, I just like circled this whole section. And so I'm just going to read it and we'll close because it's been about an hour. So here's how Roar kind of talks uh, right after that section Mike talked about. He says, I meet people of ignorant perfection every now and then. And I am always in awe of God's subtle work of art in them. It is like meeting an un unselfconscious but strikingly beautiful man or woman. These folks are usually traditional in their values. Maybe they still appear to be first naivete people. They usually, they're usually very commonsensical. There's a moral realism in healthy and grounded people. They're not ideological on the left or the right. They can accept people whom others have judged for one reason or another. They don't move up in their head and form great big explanations for why something is wrong and right. You can never shock them. They do not read reality, first of all, with their moral compass, but with eyes of compassion. They don't bring answers down from above, but find them within and evoke them from below. Also, for some reason, they don't compare. They don't take what is right in front of them on its own self-evident terms, giving each person the benefit of the doubt. I think I love and look for people like this because of my father, Richard Rohr, Kansas farmer and railroad worker, was that kind of man. I also have met simple nuns who work with prostitutes and orderlies at the jail who deal patiently with whatever is right in front of them, not even thinking to call it patience. Somehow they have rebuilt in a new form. My assumption is that at one point they were unbuilt, stripped down to the core, dare I say construction, deconstruction, and learned how to live from that clear and humbled point. So that's what I'm shooting for. <laughs> Maybe I'll get somewhere close to that, but I don't think we'll ever fully arrive in those places, but hopefully it's a, it's at least a pattern for a path forward. Yeah. And I'll, I'll end with this in response to that, because I think uh, just thanks for sharing before even reading that quote. Um, Roar ends a chapter talking about Job, which Cole already pointed to, but he connects Job with Jesus and says, you know, Job doesn't give us a tidy answer to suffering, but what it points us to is that Jesus becomes the answer in his passion, mm -hmm. death, and resurrection. Um, it's the same answer. God can be trusted. The incarnation of Jesus, God become flesh, is that God suffers too. God mm -hmm. suffers with us. And so it, it says, you know, he talks about how we're the religion that worships the victim 
And so he, he builds on that. It seems God must be trying to address a very central problem in coming among us to be crucified and be the forgiving victim. So I ask again, at the heart of everybody's spiritual problem is this question, what do we do with our pain? Mm. And I think that is one of the most potent ways to frame what we're talking about because pain and suffering is what unites all human experience. I think mm -hmm. fundamentally what hurts us most is when we think people are either undermining or neglecting to acknowledge our pain. And it's the people that have learned how to work through that, that can become those people that are unbuilt and rebuilt. I think this has been the wisdom pattern chapter four. If you uh, like what you hear, uh, pick up the book, you know, we're not even, I think the really cool part about this is we've created a community that we really haven't marketed a ton. Uh, so thank you all for journeying with us. It's been awesome. Uh, so if you like what you hear, grab this book because um, it's really something that I think can be life-changing for you. Mike thinks, uh, you know, I'm not going to speak for you, but I think you feel the same way. Um, if you are interested in sharing this with somebody else because you think it's uh, helpful, we would love if you would do that. You can also kind of leave a comment on our Instagram. You can uh, rate us and review us on any of the podcast platforms that you're listening to. Uh, and we will be back with you shortly. Thanks for journeying with us so far. See you next time.